Welcome to the Unity Works Podcast, where we'll share positive insight on today's topical and sometimes controversial topics. The discussion is shaped through the lens of unity and acceptance while focusing on our community, families, and the workplace. Life works better when we come together. Here's your host, Daryl Ross. Hello and welcome to the Unity Works Podcast. Just thrilled that you're here. I'm your host, Daryl Ross. Today, we're talking about unity through the lens of Jerry Metellus. Yeah, I am so honored to have a guest interview. Jerry Metellus, many of you in Las Vegas already know Jerry because he is a world-class photographer, but lately he's having some amazing conversations on Facebook Live, keeping dialogue going on many topics from race, equality, togetherness. So I thought he'd be the perfect person to speak with regarding unity Unity Works family, please welcome Jerry Metellus. Jerry, how are you, friend? I'm fantastic, brother. Thanks for having me. People don't know that we go way back. You know, Jennifer knew you first. My wife as a dancer, and uh, you work with her and her dance troupe with, as a photographer. But you also took a picture of my family. Wow, my son's 13, so I look at that photo. We still have it up on the wall. I think my son's one, one and a half. My daughter's a newborn. Well, the baby. Yes. and With a baby. It was, yes. We still have that up. And why I love it is you captured the story of my family. And that's kind of what you do. And so before I get into that, you know, I think long before we can decide on accepting diversity or deciding if we'll be inclusive of other people, our upbringing helps to shape us. And you have... You've had a very unique upbringing. So if you don't mind, please share with the listeners your background and how you got to be in Las Vegas. Family from Haiti, originally. And I was born in New York. I was, I, I was, I was blessed to be born in New York, with, so I have American citizenship. But then I was sent back to Haiti when about three months old, and my sister and I grew up there, uh, along with the rest of the family, aunts and uncles, my grandparents, while my parents held a fort up in New York to basically build a bridge for the rest of the family. So my parents' home eventually became the home where any family member that left Haiti, that would be the first pit stop typically into the, the state before they got on their own feet and went up to their own apartment and homes, et cetera, et cetera. And so we, at six years old, got back to be with my parents in, uh, in New York. We lived there for about a year or so. Then we moved to Montreal, Canada. There was a great opportunity for, for my father to start working over there. And the timing was perfect because things started deteriorating even in the neighborhood where we were living in Brooklyn at the time. And so he saw the writing on the wall and a massive door opened in Montreal. So we went to Montreal where we were one of the few, very, very few black families living in Montreal at the time. So much so that a kid would come up to me and run his finger on my arm and then his finger to see if the color wore off. I'm not even making this up. And uh, so... We grew up in Montreal, and when I was about 19, 20 years old, I had the opportunity to go to Japan. It was my first gig. At the time, I was into modeling, acting, dancing. I was uh, on the other side of the camera at the time. I was a performer. But I had the great opportunity to go to Tokyo, Japan, and lived there for about almost a year. And instead of going back home with my girlfriend at the time, we went to Paris, France to check it out. I ended up living there for, for seven years. And that's why I danced. I danced on the best show in Paris. It was amazing. Now, let's be clear. I didn't say I was the best dancer in Paris. I, dan- I worked on the best dance show in Paris. I sucked. <laughs> but I danced from the waist up. My legs were terrible. 
I, I had no flexibility. I wasn't a trained dancer. I came from street dance and, you know, from pop lock and stuff. So I didn't, I didn't have no extension, no feet, nothing. But I could sell anything from the waist up and make it fabulous. And after that, uh, back to the States, for, I moved to the States for uh, uh, the Bay Area for three years. Then Vegas, I've been in Vegas now for 30, 31 years. And out of those 31 years, I moved to Milan, Italy for a couple of years between 96 and 98. And here I am now. Voila. I love it because you don't realize that, you know, your upbringing is an education in itself. And sometimes you don't realize that we might be more accepting of others because we've kind of been around. We've seen other people, other cultures. Yeah, you're not only your performer side, but then your professional photographer side. And you and I talked about this prior that your lens, your scope just must speak volumes of what you see. So please share with the listeners what you mean when, you know, you've given an example of the gift that God gave you of the third eye. Explain what that means by having a third eye. So the gift of the intuition I was giving is I'm able to see the inside of someone's soul rather than the outside. And the way I've described what I do, um, it, it came from a, someone asking me, how is it you get to get people who, who are not com- comfortable in front of the camera and their picture look, the picture looks crazy. And in fact, the people themselves look, this is the first time I like the picture of myself. And I've learned to understand that just like when you cook sometimes, you don't, you don't cook by recipe, you just cook it up. Until someone asks, how did you, how'd you do that? That tastes so good. You have to reverse engineer what you did, right? And I have to reverse engineer what I do intuitively that I actually came to realize that I actually deal with someone's inside a painted and I find that truth inside them. And once I find it, I pull it out and paint them with that truth. So when I take that picture, they see themselves because they see a truer version of what they've had as opposed to the mask they typically wear every day. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That's amazing because that's part of the challenge we're in right now of seeing truth, being truthful, being authentic. And that leads me right into, you know, if you have not caught Jerry online, you have to just look him up. Jerry Metellus, he does a Facebook Live engagement pretty often. And the Facebook Live dialogues or conversations you've started, just tell me about that. You know, tell me, first of all, why you launched it and What's been the main conversation? If someone were to catch up right now, what will you be talking about for the most part? What started is a conversation with some white friends who called me after the uh, Ahmaud Arbery uh, videos came out. And everybody was outraged. They, they saw a man die live, shot, for no reason than running down a, a road, minding his business. But someone made a decision about who he was and what he was based, as far as we know, on the color of his skin. So that really researched the whole conversation about race. Now, this is not not the first time. There's a list of times when race came to the forefront. What's unfortunate, those conversations only start when there was a tragedy, right? So we get complacent and we go about our lives like everything's okay. We ignore uh, issues that actually exist that stare us in the face every day, but though they stare us in the face, they don't affect us to the same degree. So we tend to bypass and ignore them. So after Ahmad Aubrey's death, 
so I got the first call I started getting were May 7th. So May 7th, a friend of mine called and she said, hey, you know what? I'm distraught. I'm a white, privileged person. And I'm distraught. I feel so terrible for our, um, Ahmad's mom. But more importantly, I'm, I can't believe this is still going on. How do we stop racism? And the conversation went to the fact that I said to her, you can't stop it. That's in the heart of man. It's always going to be there. It's not about stopping. It's about managing it. We all have emotions. We all have anger, despair. And the conversation I had with my friend at the time, I said, maybe one of the things you can do, because, of course, I didn't have any clear answer. I said, what you're doing right now, calling me, talking about it, maybe that's what you can do. So why don't you turn on your phone, put on the camera, and say exactly what you said to me, but on camera, and put that as a video. I'm a white, privileged woman. I don't know what it's like to be black. I don't know what it's like to be a target just because of the color of my skin. And just say, speak the truth. And she did. So the, on the 8th, she did that run that they had for uh, Ahmaud Aubrey's uh, birthday. And from the trail, she made, she made that video, which was wonderful. And many other friends called me in between asking me, what, how should we do? What, what is there anything we can do to help? And then we watched, uh, I talked to my friend Dre, and we were talking about doing something about the race relations. He goes, you saw the video, right? I said, no, yeah, the, the, they shot him. I said, no, 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 today. So what What video today? So he made me go on his uh, page, Facebook page, where he had posted George Floyd's video. I hadn't seen it. I hadn't heard about it. And I watched. So we were FaceTiming. So my friend Dre watched me watch this man die on camera. Now, to tell you exactly how I felt uh, would be impossible. Because it was so, it was a, such a turmoil of emotions. However, when I stopped and in hindsight checked back, what I realized happened to me internally. You know how they say that if you're sometimes when you're about to die, you see your life flash before your eyes? Yes. And what it could describe what happened in hindsight was I saw my racial, racist life flash before my eyes. All the comments I've gotten from when I was a kid, I was the only black kid in school in Canada, had, a, had kids spit in my face, I mean, you're dirty, go wash yourself. Kids shoving me in the snow, we're gonna make you white. I mean, granted, that's racism, but from a kid's point of view, that's bullying more than systemic racism as we know it in this country and so many others. And all those things, how the police would talk to me, how a woman could catch her purse because I'm passing by her, all those things came flashing by. So that suddenly is up on the surface. It's no longer buried. And I think a lot of people felt that way. And the next thing you know, man, I'm flooded with text messages, with calls. Uh, what, are you okay? Uh, what can we do to help? And then people ask, started asking questions. Suddenly, so many people are interested to know what is it like to be black? What can we do about this? What can we create change? Before I got started, I put a post on, on Facebook saying, I need your help. I have so much I want to say. I don't know where to begin. How about this? You guys put any question you want answers to. Put it in the comments below. Just a question. Don't give me a whole big uh, essay. Just write your question. I will put those questions, print them, put them in the hat, 
And when I do my talk, I will pick the question out of the hat and just answer them. And that's how it all started. So we go down to his, well, his, the history of how we got here, why we're where we are. I recommend some movies that um, I've watched or that people recommended to me. One of them, by the way, uh, did you see the 13th? Yes, you, you recommended it to me. Man, can we talk? <laughs> and I say that that documentary should be part of every high school history curriculum. It's essential because people don't know how we got here. And then one of the things I talk about a lot as we talk about race relations is there is no one size fits all. Not only is it a multi-layered and very complex issue, you could have uh, white people that are supportive of certain uh, ideas, and for the same idea, you're going to have black people completely uh, uh, opposed to it. So I realized at some point, beyond race, there's a class issue. There's racism and there's classism. Have you met a lot of prominent black folks who truly believe, as a lot of white people with race, racial biases, as a, well, black people are just not trying hard enough. Opportunities out there, if, you, if, they, if they're still where they are, it's they're not, they don't want to get out of there, Jerry. They're not trying hard enough. And this is coming from black folks who forgot what it's like to have a liquor store in every street corner, to have a reminder everywhere you go that you don't belong there. Now, granted, is it possible to get out of it? Yes. But you have to understand some people are not tall enough to reach the edge. They need a light up. They need a ladder. They need a rope. They need something to pull them up a little bit. And the soil that you were given is such rotten, is so rotten that it sinks from time to time. They don't have a solid foundation for that culture, for that area. It's underserved. It's underfunded. So they don't have the solid ground. And that messes with your head. You also have hope with fucked out black communities. I often talk about the fact that we have, you could be homeless, but worse than homeless is hopeless. If you're homeless and you have hope, you could become a success story. Well, you could be a success story living at the top of the hill and be hopeless, and they find you hanging up that big expensive chandelier in your foyer, right? And so the, the, the understanding of another person's heart who may not be at the same rhythm as yours, who may not be for the same reasons as yours, still needs to be connected to ears and mouths. So you have to talk about it and listen to each other. That is so rich. And it's kind of funny you mentioned that in terms of the the hope and the the vision in a community. My mom and dad often talk about when they were young, they would aspire to be like a neighbor's older brother. He made it to the post office. He was a mailman. Now, uh, nothing negative against being a mailman, but in that time, if you got to work for the United States Postal Service, you made it in life. Right. And that was as far as my parents could see in terms of success. So you're so true in terms of just where the ceiling is for different communities. Now, with that, the importance of the Black Lives Matter movement, it's becoming a little more frustrating. There does not seem to be leadership or a singular focus within the Black Lives Matter movement, especially compared to major civil rights movements from our history. And you're educated in this area. You look into this. What are your feelings now, a few months in, with the Black Lives Matter movement? We have to start with how Black Lives Matter came to be and why it came to be. In this country, historically, we were 
first brought in as cattle. We're farm animals. Farm animals. Let's remember, one, that not every white person was a slave owner. In order to own slaves, you have to own a plantation. In order to own a plantation, you have to have money. So there were a lot of poor white people that did not own slaves. However, the system made it so that even if you were not a slave owner, you still treated slaves poorly. Anytime you saw a black person, you could do whatever you wanted to him with impunity. Him or her, by the way. It is important to understand and absorb that to know that this has continued throughout history. Black Lives Matter is there to expose all this and to create change. Unfortunately, when they go out there and march, they are agitators that join their ranks. They have looters that join their ranks. They, and these people have nothing to do with the, with the mission, but they make Black Lives Matter's message diluted. Yeah, I often say it real fast, Jerry. The it feels like it feels like that the Black Lives Matter movement is getting the microphone stolen away from them. A million percent, a million percent, and so that leads to to the the next part of the question. The frustrating part for me and for you as well, I believe, is we don't have Martin Luther King right now. We don't have a poised, um, articulate person that grabs the microphone. But it's not just the speech. We are missing that powerful presence that can bring calm before speaking and that could speak to be heard. And more importantly, that brings clarity to the message. Right now, the message is fuzzy because to say we want justice, what does that look like? The issue is to have this one person who will say, this is the message and this is what we must start by. And this is the plan. And let's execute the plan. Let's rehearse the plan and execute it. And it's so different than the movement back in the day. They are, we are organized. The Black Lives Matter organizes a great movement. They, they organize marches and great protests. There's a lack of cohesion from one place to the next. And more importantly, the lack of leadership in terms of having one single person that unites all the voices into one message. I I gotta say, can you come back? Can we have a, a like a part two of this? Absolutely. I we I, we're only getting started. I know. I think we have so much to, to speak on here, and I, I think it just matters that the conversations keep going. So, first of all, make sure you look him up, Jerry Metellus. Um, Jerry, how often do you do your Facebook lives? Twice a week. I do it twice a week. I do Mon- yes, Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific time and Wednesday at 11, uh, 11 a.m. Pacific time. Jerry, thank you so much for being here. God bless you. Keep doing what you're doing, and we'll tune in to your Facebook Live, guaranteed, friend. Thank you, brother. We'll, like we'll talk again very soon. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I want to thank Jerry Metellus for his insight and, again, his third eye, his lens. You know, dialogue is so important. And to gain more unity, we need more conversation. So be sure to share with your friends. Life works better when we come together. Talk to you next week.